I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. We have uh, a great guest, Heather Payne. Heather is the founder and CEO of Juno College of Technology. She was named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women, and she was founder of Canada's Learning Code, a prolific angel investor as well. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I left off a few things and didn't read it because I, I, I thought I was going to embarrass you if I just read every single thing. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate um, that. <laughs> but I love starting at the beginning. But before before we do that, maybe just give people a sense of, of what Juno does. I think it's super interesting. And then we'll take a step back and, and talk about how you got there. So Juno is a registered college uh, that I started about eight and a half years ago. So I was, you know, in my early 20s. Um, so you, you, you were right out of college and started a college. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, I have only about a year of actual work experience uh, before starting my own thing. And we essentially help people transform their careers and become web developers. So we help people go from, you know, working in retail or working in hospitality or working as an artist to getting a job as a developer, or making money as a developer. So it's really rewarding work, of course, because you're you're helping so many people start their career. They're so thankful to you for, for helping them with that. Uh, we have a team of about 33 or 34 people or so. And we serve around maybe 1,200 students a year from our campus in downtown Toronto, which is 12,000 square feet, currently sitting empty uh, because of COVID. So we're now uh, uh, teaching things live online, which actually has also been going really great. So a silver lining to COVID is that it's really opened up the world to us. No, I think, I think a lot of businesses have had to you know, adapt. It's, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, uh, I was just talking to one of my colleagues right before this, and we're starting to pilot opening our office next week. It's so crazy to think that we've all been at home for the last six months. Yeah, it's been a long time. We're not opening up this year. The nature of it is that we're only going to open if we're having students here, and it's just not, I don't think it's the, the right move. Yeah. So like, I guess based on the stereotype, you don't strike me as a coder. I mean, you know, I don't know what that stereotype is, but how did you get there? You know, take, take me back. I mean, what, what did your childhood look like? Was technology a big part of that? You know, just give me a, a sense of, of, of what the, the early part of your, of your life looked like. Yeah, yeah. No technology exposure at all. No entrepreneurial exposure either. So I'm the oldest of three. I was always a, an overachiever in school, always really academically inclined and ended up being the first person in my family to go to university, uh, which is really exciting. An important experience I had in high school was actually working at my local McDonald's. I started working there when I was 15 and was promoted to being a manager when I was 16 and just found that work like really interesting, really fun. Um, so I would work 30 hours a week all through high school while still handling, you know, my, my, my course load and all of that. And that helped me to save up some money to be able to go to university and, and ultimately um, in my final year go on exchange to Hong Kong, which was really my first time being abroad. And while I was there, I was actually supposed to return to Toronto, start working. This was in 2009. So right 
you know, in the recession, I was lucky to even have a job in Toronto. And I ended up just saying, you know what, I know nothing about the world. I am not moving back to Toronto and starting my life yet. I need to stay and, you know, stay in Asia longer. So I ended up finding this scholarship program run by the Chinese government. They use it to bring foreigners into their universities and uh, got accepted for that. Moved to a small town in China called Xiamen, which has about a million residents. Uh, there's almost no, 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 that's, that's small in China. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, there's like almost no English there, so I had to really quickly like learn some basic Mandarin and learn to get by, and it definitely was an adjustment. And for some reason, while I was there, I started learning how to code. And I have no idea, looking back, like where that idea came from. I basically started skipping all my classes and going to coffee shops and like doing tutorials and building websites. And and uh, you know, I saw that it would be helpful for me coming back to Toronto to have that skill set. But I really don't know what the initial spark was. So just you just randomly started. Just randomly started, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you must so, be a naturally inquisitive person, right? I mean, you know, to take something like that up. Is, yeah, uh, and it's, I, it's not normal. <laughs> and I think I was really focused on like, what am I going to do with my life? You know, like I've just moved to China. I've been living here for a year. At some point, I'm going to have to go home. And like, how am I going to make sure that I can have a cool job and a, and a cool life? Ultimately, it, it didn't help me right away. When I moved back to Toronto, it was tough. It was 2010. Um, so still sort of you know, in the recession. And the best job I could find was to be a personal assistant. So I spent my days fetching coffees and buying people toothbrushes and taking notes and uh, did that for about six months and then started what my first baby was, uh, a nonprofit called Ladies Learning Code. So I want to go back for a second. I mean, you know, you said you're the first person to, to go to university in your family, eldest of three. I mean, what did your parents do to kind of give you the, the idea that that was even possible? Because, you know, people, you hear a lot about you have to see it to believe it's possible for yourself. What did, what did you see in your childhood that, that made it possible for you? Yeah. I mean, I was so lucky with my upbringing. Like if any of your questions later are like, what got you here? Like luck or skill? I'm like luck, you know, a lot of luck, like even 99% luck just to be born to the parents that I had at the time that I was born and, and all of that. I think from a young age, my mom has a story she loves to tell about how my she wanted to go and see my grade one teacher and she really wanted to ask my teacher, like, she's really bossy. Like, are you finding this too? Like, what are we going to do about this? And she brought this to my teacher at a parent-teacher interview. And uh, my teacher, honestly, thank goodness for her, said, no, no, she's not bossy. She's showing good leadership skills. And so right from the age of grade one, my mom, you know, changed her perception and was like, okay, she's showing good leadership skills. And, and I think that really helped her and my dad to like encourage that behavior in me. And then, you know, all through school, I mean, I, I just, it, school was really easy for me. Um, just really lucky that I, I didn't have to put a lot of effort in, came really easily. I remember being in grade three and being put in this like gifted class and the only other kids in it were six grade six boys and me, you know, so I've, I've always been sort of used to being a little bit the odd one out and navigating through the, the school system that way. You're telling stories and I'm, I'm, I'm reminiscing about my childhood. It sounds similar. There's a lot of similar stories. I want to actually talk about a similar story. I was 15 when I started as a stock boy at Shoppers Drug Mart and became a manager at 16. So talk to me about your time at McDonald's. I think that people like to gloss over some of those early jobs, but I think that they, sometimes they're the, the most impactful in you know, giving you an idea of what you want to be and what you want to achieve in your life. So you know, what, what, what was it about McDonald's that you took away? I, I've spoken to you twice now and both times you mentioned that. So it obviously had an impact. 
was it about it that had an impact? Yeah. I mean, McDonald's has an interesting legacy in my family because my parents worked there when they were 16 and that's actually how they met. And uh, my sister worked there too. My brother worked there too. So we've got a a deep McDonald's roots um, in our family. And I think what I liked about McDonald's as a 15 year old was that it was so clear what you had to do to be successful there. Like, cause it's such a well-oiled machine, you know, they will tell you at the end of your shift how many sales you put through your till and and whether you were the top one or not. And I was really motivated by those boundaries and wanting to like clearly be the best at everything. So I found that really fun. I found it really interesting to learn about all the systems and how they did everything efficiently. And I had a really great manager as well. The store manager was so interested in like helping to develop me. And like, I remember one time the story sticks out. I came in and there was... I was a manager already, but there was someone who worked there who was older than me, who I was a bit intimidated by because I was, you know, 16, maybe she was 19. And, and I, I didn't say hi to her because I just felt intimidated. And he immediately had me come out out of the store, had a talk. Hey, why didn't you say hi to her? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I felt weird. She's like, he's like, no, you're a manager. It's your job. You say hi to everyone when they come in. And I was like, okay, wow. So like hundreds of those moments over, you know, a four-year career at McDonald's or five-year career at McDonald's, essentially, like I really developed a lot there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, you talk about well-oiled machine. It really brings to light how important good systems and processes are in building a business, period. When you see a machine like, like McDonald's and how, how efficient it runs. And my, my uncle owns a few McDonald's outside of Toronto and I've had the pleasure of just kind of viewing it from that lens. And it's, it's truly incredible to see how good a business can be at, uh, at being efficient and, and running itself smoothly. So uh, you, you mentioned the story about being in grade one and the teacher kind of reframing for your mother. It's not bossy. It's showing good leadership. I'm the father of a daughter. And, you know, one of the things I think about all the time is how unfair, you know, society is in labeling the attributes in men, some, some attributes in men in a positive light. And then somehow it becomes a negative thing for a woman. And, you know, I think it's, uh, I think about it much more now being the father of a daughter and not wanting, you know, that, that, that ceiling on her. I mean, how have you combated that? I mean, especially, you know, overachiever, competitive, even in how many, you know, McDonald's orders you you put through. I'm sure you've faced a lot of kind of pushback to that competitiveness, that, you know, quote unquote bossiness. Talk to me about some of your experiences and, and what you tell other women who are looking to you know, carve out a leadership role in their lives. Yeah. I mean, recently I watched uh, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and the Bucks, and it's so good. And it, it really, you know, I'm quite comfortable with who I am at this point. I'm, I'm 33 years old and like, this is what it is, but it really like drove home for me that you just got to be who you are. And there's obviously some cons to being who Michael Jordan is. There's obviously some cons to, you know, my personality type. And, you know, I have a very direct style, um, certainly not afraid to speak my mind. There's definitely some cons to that, but for the most part, it's my superpower, you know? So I think all through my life, I was really eager to go into leadership positions. And I think the hardest part of it all was dealing with resentment from other people or other women in particular, and also people maybe not wanting to be led necessarily at all or by me particularly. But somehow I managed to navigate that well enough. And I don't know if it was because I had learned so much along the way, like even being 19 and having that five-year career at McDonald's already under my belt, like you learn a lot about leadership. So it might've been that I just sort of got by by being okay at it. And it might've been that people just didn't care to (laughs) speak up and and tell me that they had a problem with it because I had a plan and I was already like 
way around the corner and down the block. Um, so that might've been the case too, but it is definitely a challenge. I have a, a very strong willed daughter personally, and I definitely think all the time about not wanting to like snuff her out in any way and wanting her to just like be exactly who she is. And the Michael Jordan documentary, the last dance really helped me like reinforce that. Like that's so important. Whoever she is, is who she needs to become. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you talk about your, your superpower. You don't use these words, but I use them often. I say my superpower is self-awareness, you know, because being comfortable in your own skin requires a, a ton of self-awareness. Is that something that you've, you've always had? Is it, is it a skill that's been developed? I'm tiptoeing around the nature nurture question because I want to leave it to later. We'll touch on it now in the context of self-awareness. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I want to say yes, because like, who doesn't want to say yes to that? I mean, I can say for sure... The last year of my business has been certainly the most challenging ever. And maybe we'll end up getting into this a little bit later, but essentially, you know, mid last year, I was getting a lot of feedback about myself as a leader and um, hearing that I wasn't an empathetic leader and that people were having trouble relating to me, which is, I think, something I've had in my whole life. And so I really took that in and ended up hiring an executive coach hiring a therapist for the first time in my life and like working through a lot of those things that are like blocking me from presenting as that way and really being that, that kind of person. So I, I think I'm more self-aware now than I was even a year ago, having like really put in a lot of work to be able to get there. Growing up, you know, it's honestly hard to remember. Like, was I a self-aware 18 year old? seems hard to say yes to that because like what 18 year old could possibly be self-aware. But I think I was always really mature and I was always really like forward thinking way more than most people. Like I like to think five years ahead. And when you're 18, most people don't do that. I was always really into the idea of like, how does what I'm doing right now, like ladder up to something else happening in three or four years. This topic of empathy is really interesting. You said you've been told that you weren't an an empathetic leader and that you took steps to try and present that way. My question to you, because I I actually think it's the right move, but why is empathy important in leadership? You know, I I think about that all the time because you look at the the likes of like a Steve Jobs as an example. I mean, if you read anything about him, it would be very clear that he did not lead empathetically uh, and he drove results. So in your opinion, why is empathy important? Yeah. I mean, first, I didn't want to just present that way. I actually wanted to change and like be that way. And the reason it was important was because it was what my team needed from me. It was what I was hearing from them. And I care a lot about my team and I care about being the kind of leader that they look up to and respect. And so if they needed me to go and investigate and invest in in developing a certain competency, like I'm super open to that feedback. I would say I wasn't always open to uh, feedback. It took some work as well to even get to the point where that was something comfortable for me. But I totally see now that like anything someone wants to tell me about how I could do a better job or, or be a better person, like I'm so open to hearing it. And you know whether I will take 100% of that feedback, obviously that's up to me to decide. But I, I really do appreciate hearing it. And you know I heard I heard it from enough angles that I was like, okay, this seems to be a problem. And I like who I am more now. You know, I in the past I would sort of not process emotions. It allowed me to be really efficient. But I like now that you know when I talk to people about things and they and they share something difficult or I'm sharing something difficult, like we're connecting at a deeper level that that other people have always connected on. That that was just a missing piece of my life. And so I, I just feel like a more whole person at this point. You glossed over something that I want to dive a little deeper. I asked you the question about the, the differences between how men and women are treated with certain qualities. Your exact words were other women in particular. So I've seen that. So I want to ask you, why is it that you've, you know, you've mentioned the jealousy 
uh, and resentment from other women in particular. So I'm using your words. <laughs> Why do you think that happens? You got to think that it, it goes back to like the roots of humans in the oldest times. It's about trying to attract a mate. And in this world, like the woman who is the most beautiful or most well-spoken or most creative or artistic or whatever, there's some various criteria I'm sure people would use back then to choose who their mate should be. That's the one who gets the best other mate, you know? So I think it like has its roots there. There's just a, a real like built within us an innate sense of competition. What I think has been great, especially in recent years, is that there's a real movement that I have seen and it's been visible of women supporting women. And I, in my own personal life, I don't feel that this is something that really happens at all anymore. And, and certainly in, in my life, you know, I am so glad and happy. And I, I basically live to help and serve women who, who want more in their careers. And, and I want more women to become developers and I want more women to become entrepreneurs and angel investors and all of that stuff. So I'm really like living in service of that goal. Who knows if that's a bit of a reflection of, you know, how I felt sometimes as a kid, not feeling supported. And now, you know, as my life's work, wanting to, wanting to really go down that path, that, that could definitely be a, a real connection. You say that we're naturally competitive, and I completely agree with you. I think it's, it's, it's in our DNA. The one thing that scares me, I, mean, I know that you're, that you're a mother, and you know, I have kids myself, but this movement towards kind of penalizing competition, you know, all, the, all these children get participation medals for anything they do. Like, I didn't grow up that way, and I think it's super dangerous. Like, I, I think if my, my child loses a soccer game, I want them to know that they lost a soccer game and to accept that loss and to learn from it. What's your view on the balance between not destroying children's egos, but at the same time, not falsifying them either? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's important as a parent to support your child. You know, so if a kid comes in second or third or last, you know, in a race or something like that, it's like, wow, that must be really hard. Like, do you need a hug? Like, how can I help you? But it's not about saying like, oh, you did a great job. You'll do better next time. Like they might not. It would be up to them to decide if they want to do better next time. Um, and you as a parent need to love them either way. So I definitely think it's not about like trying to gloss over um, when people don't win. It's not about trying to build people up if they come in last. I think we need to, as parents, support our kids and let their decision, you know, if they want to compete, I think we need to support that. If they're not interested in competing, I think that can also be okay, but it's not up to us to say. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the things I, I had Googled you earlier today, which I typically don't do because I like going into these things completely blind, but I was just curious as to some of the things that you discussed. And I went on your Twitter feed and I think it was your second, second to last tweet was about exercise and how you've incorporated exercise back into your life. I haven't actually spoken about this subject in particular with anyone, so I wanted to talk to you about it. Why is exercise important? I mean, outside of the, the vanity metric of you know staying healthy, oh, staying healthy, and then also feeling good about yourself. You know, for me, exercise is a lot more than that. It's it's hugely mental for me, and you know, just wanted to talk about what you gain from it and, and why it's important in your life. Yeah, the tweet that you're referencing, basically like pre-COVID, I was sort of a twice a week gym goer. F45 was my favorite. And I have like a long history of exercise. I was a personal trainer at one point in university and stuff like that. So always been really physically active. And when COVID hit and you couldn't go to the gym, I just like 
couldn't figure out what to do. I, I'm not motivated to like work out by myself. I won't like, I won't do it. Um, so it took me two, six months to figure out how to do it. And it turns out that I needed this particular app that I'm using plus, um, doing my workouts during the day, um, at work. And the reason that for me, it's important lately is really around longevity. I've been doing a lot of learning about longevity. Um, I recently realized that when my youngest child moves out of the house, I'll be 49. And so I'm really interested in like being a super young 49-year-old. I'm going to have this whole extra life to live uh, when my kids move out. So I've become really interested in longevity because of that. And what I learned about exercise from, from reading lots of books is like exercise actually like it, it grows the size of your heart, you know, it makes your heart more effective at like pumping blood and, and oxygen like all throughout your body. And so for me right now, that's my why. It's not so much, I mean, of course I like to be strong and, and all of that, but it's really about an investment that I'm making in a very future period of time where like future me is hopefully going to be very thankful to, to present me. You've spoken about vision and thinking about the future numerous times in this conversation. I do that a lot. And I think about the future probably a little too much. And, and, I, and I catch myself, you know, if, if, you, if you read any books about you know, the art of happiness. It's all about living in the present moment. How do you balance, you know, that desire to be a planner? Because I'm a planner. It sounds like you are very much a planner. How do you balance the desire to be a planner with, you know, I think intuitively knowing that to be the happiest version of yourself, you probably should live as much of your life as you can in that moment. That's a great question and great point. It's interesting because like, even though I do think a lot about the future. I feel so happy and like fulfilled in my life today. And I'm sure it's largely because I love my work and that, I mean, we spend like, you know, eight or nine hours a day doing this stuff. And and for me, the time flies every single day. Like I'm always in a state of flow pretty much um, when it comes to work. So it's interesting because like somehow thinking a lot about the future hasn't resulted in a trade-off for me in the present, but I don't know why that that's the case. Interesting, because I, I definitely find it's a trade-off for me. And you mentioned fulfillment, so I want to go just a, even a, a, a layer deeper. How, as a, as a person who you know is striving for more and you know wants to achieve you know different goals or more, you know higher level goals, how do you feel fulfilled at the same time? Want that more? Because for sure, I've been guilty of you know it's not good enough. You know, it, uh, it, things happen. It's like okay, great, I achieved this goal. On to the next one. And my wife tells me all the time, like, just like, take a step back, look what you've done, be happy with it. Like, it doesn't have to always be about the process of the next thing. I catch myself that, that doing that all the time. And it probably does prevent me from being as fulfilled as I probably could be. Yeah, that's a great point. I think part of it has to do with the truly feeling that the work that I do changes people's lives. I feel so grateful that I get paid and my profession is to help a thousand people a year switch into a better career and finally be able to, you know, move out of their parents' house for the first time or, you know, be able to propose to their fiance because they're finally in a stable career or whatever it might be. And so when I think about like other businesses that I could have started, if I was, if I was running a different type of business, maybe I wouldn't get that same level of fulfillment as like actually helping individuals make their lives better. And then also knowing like, I'm going to be at this for a long time. That's the other cool thing about like loving what you do so much. And, I, and there's a lot of opportunity in the space. So it's, it's a really exciting profession or role to be in. And like, I'm going to probably do this for another several decades. It's already been eight and a half years. And I'm, I'm really going to do what I'm doing right now for, for a lot longer than that. Um, this is my life's work. This is what I will do for the rest of my career. And so 
I know that it's going to be something great. You know, it's already great. I already love it. Uh, we've already helped a lot of people. And over the next several decades, if I can grow this to be a $50 million company or a $100 million company, which a $100 million company is our goal, that's where we're trying to get to, then, you know, that would be even better. But, you know, I already feel really happy with where it is. So you mentioned that you love helping people and that, you know, you, you turn people into coders, which equals a better career. I want to talk about coding now. Let's, let's move to that skill set. I say something pretty extreme to my wife and I say, and I don't mean it this way. So people don't kill me when I say this, but if, if you don't t- teach your children to code, it's a form of child abuse because I, I like, and what I mean by that is it, I think it's that important of a skill set for future generations. I don't know how to code at all. And it, I, I wish I did. Maybe I should just take your course and stop making excuses. Um, but what is it about coding that you think is so important? Why do you think it's a better career? Where do you see the trajectory of someone who's very proficient at coding being now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now? Because in my opinion, 50 years from now, you're either working for the machine or building the machine. So, you know, that's why I think it's so important. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's there's two reasons really why like coding literacy is so important, broadly speaking. One is that these are some of the best jobs out there and I want everyone to have access to these jobs. And so this is a real why for us around, you know, why we do our work at Juno is like, we don't want the tech industry to be filled with white men. That's not good for people. That's not good for society or humanity. Uh, we want everyone out there to have access to these flexible jobs. You know, these jobs have largely not been impacted by COVID. We were keeping track of how many of our grads got laid off in sort of the depths of the COVID crisis in March and April. And it was like, you know, we heard from like five or 10 people out of 800 or 900 people that have graduated from our programs. So it's like, they're very resilient jobs. They're high paying. So I just want to make sure that women have access to these jobs. I want to make sure that, you know, people of color, black people, indigenous people have access to these jobs. And especially those at the intersections of those different identities, because those are even more underrepresented in the tech industry. And then the reason that the tech industry should care about this is that these products that we're making, if you're going to go really big, they need to serve everyone. They can't just serve a sliver of the population. And I've seen in my own work as well at Juno that like, as soon as we have people at the table who represent different types of folks, different walks of life, walks of life, different backgrounds, like everything about our product has become better. So that's also a reason it matters. I think it's foolish to create a product that you think is going to serve the entire world and, and help everyone in the world when it's being created by a very specific slice of a demographic. And for people that are listening and are parents, what should they be doing with their children early on? I mean, I, I know yours is a, you know, your, your, your program is for adults. Um, you know, are, are there any things that, you, that any, any programs or anything that you would advocate for for those parents listening that are saying, you know what, I totally buy this. I need to get my kid early on be, becoming more proficient at, at coding. What should they do? First, getting your kid role models who look like them who do this stuff is very important. And it can be a little bit trickier if you have girls. Um, it can be definitely trickier if you have black girls or black boys or indigenous girls and boys. But there are organizations out there who are making people who do this work, who have every single background under the sun, bit more visible. The nonprofit that I started before starting Juno called Ladies Learning Code, it's now 
known as Canada Learning Code. They have a number of different coding workshops that they run for kids all across the country. And they will even bring their code mobile to your children's school or to like a community center. And it has laptops and it has all the supplies and they can run coding workshops for you know your community. And you can just request a visit uh, through their website. So that's one thing that's been really great. Um, they run workshops with mentors. And you know back when I was creating these programs in you know 2012 or whatever that was, it was really important to me that the people who were the leaders at these camps were sort of like older sister figures. You know, we ran a camp called Girls Learning Code. We had all these um, young women uh, who were the mentors and the, and the coaches and, and leaders of the camp. And like, you got to see someone who looked like you, who was just, you know, 10 years older than you were or something like that. And I think that stuff really makes a difference in terms of, so like, say you've checked that box or like, great, I found some good ways to find uh, mentors for my, my kid. I've shown them that people who look like them, you know, are doing this kind of work. I think then you can get into like the actual tactics of like, what can they work on? And so two come to mind that I really love. One is a programming language called Scratch. Um, It's been developed by MIT and it's sort of like a visual coding language where you can pull in loops and if and then statements and put pieces together and make little characters move around, make them dance, make games. Um, So you do need to know how to read in order to do that one. You need good control of a mouse. So my kids are too young for it right now, but that's like the first place I would go as soon as someone has those basic skills. Um, For younger kids, what I've loved just introducing my kids to recently was a makey makey. It is a like circuit board, I guess you would call it, with like different alligator clips that attach to it. And then you plug the other end of the alligator clip into something that conducts electricity. Then you hold like the, the grounding wire. And then, you know, we plugged it into Play-Doh, for example. So we had like a few different alligator clips plugged into Play-Doh. And then we pulled up this piano on the screen and programmed the circuit board so that when you press on a certain Play-Doh, it presses a certain key on the piano. And my kids loved it. They spent like an hour playing with it. My daughter's not quite four. So it's, it's really appropriate for that sort of age group and even younger. And it starts to show them that like, okay, so I want this key to do this. So I need to plug this in here. You know, it's starting to get, get those wheels turning that like, oh, I can control things and I can change things by like editing the way something works. And I think that's the mindset you want to get kids into. That's great advice. I'm going to, I'm going to check out Scratch. My, my, my children are now eight and six, and I haven't started the concerts, but I think it's, a, it's, it's an appropriate time. One of the things that you said, which I'm going to say BS on, is 99% luck. I don't buy it. So if, if you want to talk about the 1%, I'll say it's more than 1%, but let's talk about the 1%. What are some of the good decisions that you made in your life that you look back on and say, well, you know what, like that was the right move? I mean, I would imagine one of them is probably going abroad. Uh, you know, learning about a completely different part of the world. But like, talk, talk to me about some of those like key things you look back on and say, you know, I'm glad I made these decisions. One is uh, choosing to go not to my homeschool for high school, but going to a different high school in, in Brampton to be able to do the international baccalaureate program. That was really cool. Put me in with a, a really cool group of kids, other teens. That job at McDonald's, I'll always be grateful for. Also, when I went to university, I joined a sorority. And I really valued that experience for a reason that people wouldn't necessarily always think of. Um, It was fun. It was fun to have like built-in friends. But what I loved most about it was that it's really when I learned how to run a business. You know, a sorority, they have a job. They need to recruit new members. They need to run programming for those members. They need to make people want to come back year after year so that they keep paying their dues for the rest of their university career. And we also had a facility that we had, uh, a house that we had owned since like 1945 or something like that. So there was a bunch of stuff around like, 
home ownership and home maintenance and facility management that I, I got to learn as well. So that was one of the early experiences that I think really contributed to me feeling confident in starting a startup because I felt like I'd already kind of run a small business previously. And then, yeah, going to Hong Kong was definitely an important experience and a really cool decision. And then making the leap to start my own company, I think making the decision to leave a job that I didn't love, that clearly wasn't going to be my career. And just saying, I'm going to, I had gotten a job at a startup after that personal assistant job. And I think I was making like $37,000 a year. And I just one day realized like, you know what, I can probably figure out how to make $37,000 a year working for myself instead of working for someone else. And so, I mean, I'll never regret that decision, even though it was a, a lot of tough years getting it started. It's, it's been obviously amazing to be completely in charge of my own destiny. Yeah. I mean, you talk about that, that, that decision point to kind of leap out on your own. Talk to me about that process. Was it like an instant in time? Was it a, a long kind of calculated process when you made that final decision? What was it? People think that entrepreneurs are like super risk-taking people. And that's not how I see myself at all. I think I am risk averse and that's why I must control everything about my life and career. And that's, you know, why I became an entrepreneur, but back when I was- are control freaks. Yeah, totally. Exactly. (laughs) So when I was in that job, I had actually started Ladies Learning Code on the side and it had been going probably for like three or six months. And it, it had become clear to me that like I could make half a living, you know, 20 grand a year or something like that, just by running Ladies Learning Code. And so that's when it started to feel less scary to take the leap and go full time because I'm like, okay, well, I can, I can at least cover like half of my expenses or, or, you know, even two thirds of my expenses through this thing that I've already got going that has a lot of promise. And then I knew I just had to figure out the other half. So for me, it was around feeling confident that I would be able to like still pay the bills. And I've heard that there's been really successful programs run around risk training for girls in particular. Girls are less likely to take risks and it obviously has an impact on your whole entire life. So I've heard about some programs that help girls learn to take risks a little bit earlier. And as a mom and for you as a dad, like I think this is one of the most important things we can teach our young girls. I even think about when a girl is is doing a babysitting gig, which you know many of our daughters will do, like who tells the person how much it costs? And like, are we teaching our daughters to negotiate? Because we should, because like, who cares if you get told no, when you're 13, you learn that life goes on, you still do the job. They still want you. They said no to 15 and you settle at 14. Like it's all fine, but they need to practice that when they're 13 and 14 years old. So that by the time they're 18, 20, 30, that's like, they're used to it. Like that's what they just do all the time. So there's a lot of opportunities as we're raising girls to make sure that we're like encouraging them to take those small risks early on so that later on in life, it doesn't feel as scary. You're touching on the subject of, of, of mentorship and you've touched on it a few times during this discussion. My, my question is, is specific. You also mentioned that you had engaged with an executive coach and a therapist. What about those two relationships in particular has helped you that you maybe couldn't have gotten from you know, just mentorship generally that, that one would, would get in their careers? Yeah, I've been actually horrible with mentorship. Like I haven't done a good job of seeking 
mentors. I have definitely lots of people I can call when I have a specific question. I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs who are sort of similar stage as me, maybe a year or two ahead of me. So that's a a mentoring relationship in some cases for sure, because they have have lived it already. But I, I don't have a ton. I do get a lot of benefit from like a forum group that I'm part of. And that's been really helpful to me. And also my husband is also an entrepreneur and founder. Uh, so I feel like I have a built-in mentor like in my life, um, which I really value. I think with the the coach and therapist, what I really got from that was, I mean, I went into it with the expectation that I'm going to share some stuff and you're going to help me get better. And I'm paying you to do that. So I expect that there's going to be some, some results. Whereas I think with a mentorship relationship, I don't know if I would ever put that much onus on the, the person mentoring me that like, I expect that this is going to get better. I mean, I do learn a ton when I've had conversations with, with other entrepreneurs that I respect, I always learn something, but it wasn't, it wouldn't be necessarily expected. That's interesting. I, I've never thought of, thought of it that way that you can put expectations on someone you pay <laughs> when, you, when you can't do that. It's, it's very true. That's, that's really interesting. I want to get to this, this nature nurture discussion. This is the longest discussion we've had. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good observer of people. And it's like, I, I can just see why you're a good leader just by talking to you and hearing about your childhood. It's like, okay, you, you grew up, you clearly have a high IQ. You did well in school. Like, all these things are like checking boxes. I'm like, of course, she's going to be successful in her life. She has all these things that she was born with. I don't know if you know my opinion, so I'll, I'll share it. My opinion is 80% uh, nature, 20% nurture. People get it twisted. You know, that they, they think that because I put more on nature, that nurture doesn't matter. It's totally false. I think the nurture makes you either the bomb on the street or the billionaire. I think both those exist within the nurture. But where you fall on that tree is a very specific part of that tree based on how you were born. What's your viewpoint? As you know, most people don't have it super easy in school and have to work hard. I mean, you know, you were blessed with these gifts. So I'd love to hear your opinion on, uh, on, on, on how things shake out as it relates to nature and nurture. I did tweet about this recently and it, it wasn't popular, <laughs> but I'm like a 99% luck kind of person. So I think that's, it's not a one-to-one. So, I mean, if we're thinking nature versus nurture, if I don't think about luck, Am I more nature than nurture? Yes, I think that's true. I am definitely more nature than nurture. Man, it's really hard to say. What would you tell people? This, this is what really matters. Is, is I, I agree with you. I think we're more nature than nurture. Knowing that, what do you tell someone who wants to be something that they just can't be? I mean, it's, that's, that's the tough thing for me. It's like, you know, school tells you you could be anything you put your mind to. And I call bullshit. I just don't believe that. You know, if, if someone would have told me about becoming a professional basketball player and then I could have, you know, made it to the NBA, I would have spent a lot of time wasting time. So I think it's really dangerous to tell people that they could be anything they want to be. They, you could be anything that you should be, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah, I think a lot about like Taylor Swift or um, Michael Jordan or like anyone who's just at the top of the top of their of their industry. I mean, even even super successful CEOs at some point or at many points in their lives, they made the choice that like, I'm going to push harder. I'm going to keep going. Even though someone told me I can't, I'm going to do it. And like, I don't think I, I do that. You know, like I could have, when I, when I went through Y Combinator with, with Juno, and then I, you know, I raised some money from, from VCs and stuff like that. Like I could have raised more by just 
saying more and being more and like being what you're supposed to be. But like, I didn't have it in me. So I didn't do that. And, you know, Taylor Swift, like she could have settled at any point and just said, well, I guess this is good enough. But she just keeps saying like, I will be the best in the world. And then she becomes the best in the world by doing that. So I don't think anyone can tell us what we can be, but we certainly can tell ourselves what we can be. And if you're willing to do more than anybody else to succeed, you know, even for yourself, if you were like, I'm obsessed with being in the NBA. And if you really, really like put everything that you had into it, because that's what those players do. They put everything that they have into becoming super elite basketball player. The thing is like, you probably weren't willing to do that. And like, for me, I, I wasn't willing to, you know, I wanted to become an actress as a kid. I wasn't willing to like do the things you have to do to become like a famous actress. Like I just wasn't into it. Same token, you know, not everyone is 6'9", 280 pounds and looks like LeBron James. For right? sure. That's, that's just a fact. <laughs> For sure. But there's people in the NBA who are six feet. Totally, yeah. But there's probably not many people who are much shorter than that. So there's definitely... And, but you'll get that feedback, don't you think, from society? Like, at some point, if you're a kid and you grow up and you're, you're only 5'5", five, five, like, people are going to be like, sorry, this is not going to work for you. And then you decide what you do with that feedback. At some point, you switch gears. What does your life look like 10 years from now? I mean, you say that this is your life's work. So, so what, is, what, what does Juno look like 10 years from now? I mean, like I said, we, our 10-year target is to be at $100 million in revenue. So we're hopefully a, a very uh, large and significant player in the, in the education landscape. What we're really doing here is creating the modern university. You know, the, the university system was created so many centuries ago, um, hasn't changed much in that time, despite the whole world around it changing completely. And so what we want to do is just create the modern version. And, and it turns out it's, it's not necessarily that different from the current version. It's really more of an optimization. It's around the classes being more participatory. It's about the, the program itself being more accessible, equitable, inclusive, um, diverse. We think that matters a lot. And it has strong connections to employment. You know, that's where we've really had a major departure in the last you know, few decades, or at least the last decade for sure, is that it's so, so expensive to go to university and there's no connection to employment at all. And it's, it's actually why my school exists. Like if universities were doing a good job, there would be no space for us in the market. So what we want to do is right now we have a single vocational program. We can help you become a web developer. But what we want to do is look at all the emerging professions that are out there, of which there are so many jobs that are not even created yet that your kids will do and my kids will do. So we want to look at what are the trends? What are the emerging professions? create programs that serve those professions and eventually have, you know, 10 or 20 or 40 different vocations that we train people for. And, you know, hopefully one day buy our own campus once COVID is over and people can congregate again, have our own campus, you know, design it in a way that's really inclusive and just like be the next U of T, but do it in a better way. Interesting. You talk about buying a campus. You had mentioned right before we went live that, you know, you're, you're virtual and you're, you're teaching everyone virtual and it's going well. Why do you think it should go back to you know, the traditional on-campus model? Because I think about that all the time for, for our office. Yeah, I think we need both. Um, so even now, you know, once it's safe to do so, we will open up the, our downtown um, Toronto campus again. And I think the, the in-person and, and the online stuff will serve slightly different audiences. People will come in person to learn. Um, maybe they'll be a slightly younger demographic. Maybe they're working from home and they want to meet other people and, and socialize and build a network. And so that's why they bother coming to school. Um, some people genuinely prefer learning that way. So they might make that choice too. And you might choose to learn online with us instead if you 
you know, you already have a family, you already are settled down. Maybe you don't live in downtown Toronto and you really just need the content, the content, the accountability, the community, like that's what you're looking for, but you're not looking to necessarily make friends. And then I think the the campus piece, you know, which I imagine as a place that has, you know, classrooms and dorms and and the whole shebang, um, I think that will be really important if we want to serve high school graduates. Um, Right now, that's not an audience that we serve, but I'd like to serve that group one day. And that group needs to move away from home. That has always happened in every single like civilization and every single cultural group in the past, you know, people go on a a voyage or a learning journey as they transition from being a a teenager or kid or teenager to being a grown up, a man or a woman or or a person. And I think that's really critical. That was an important time of growth for me. And I want to give people not the experience that they get today, because I think that's an imperfect experience, but really going back to like first principles, like what should that graduating from high school into adulthood period look like. And it's probably not a four-year thing. It's probably shorter than that, a year or two. And I think there's some some features of it that would be really different than the way that we do it today. So Heather, for those people that want to you know, continue learning from you and follow your journey, where can they find you? I know you're on Twitter, but where are the other places that they can find you? Twitter, I'm at Heather Payne. Also Instagram, also at Heather Payne there. And uh, those are probably the main things right now. I always have like these ideas of like, oh, I got to start blogging more. Like I want to start a podcast. But then I have to remind myself, I have two young kids and a business and my husband has a business and we all just need to relax. That's a good goal. (laughs) I'm sure you'll have that all planned out when the time comes. (laughs) So Heather, thank you so much for, for joining me. That was super interesting. Uh, I, I learned a lot. I'm, I'm absolutely going to look up this Scratch program and get my kids going. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, joining uh, joining me on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.